Welcome to Trial by Wine. We take a closer look at crimes that highlight how fascinating humans can be. Schmitty, Swanee and Clarky visit crimes and run them through their jury of three, debating both sides of the case to agree an appropriate, if totally fictitious, sentence. Please be advised, Trial by Wine may include explicit or disturbing content and will include drunken rambling. Listener discretion is advised. <laughs> All right, how are we? Yeah, great. How about you? <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad? Yep, not bad, not bad at all. And uh, you are back on Excellent. Australian soil this time, aren't you? Oh, it's madness. Yeah, we're back. We're trying to squeeze way too many things into a short period of time so they can fly out again on Sunday. It's all going very well. How about you two? What's news? I'm happy for you, I suppose. Uh, my you house double glazing went in today. <gasps> That's exciting. I think that's very hard to have any news compared to somebody who's come in from Europe, what, on a Sunday and then following Sunday they're flying out to South America. I don't know that any news I could have would be able to I know. My that. double glazing definitely pales by comparison, oh. <laughs> but, but it mattered to me, okay? You know, like it's, <laughs> I, said to, I said to my it's, boss, it's, I have to work from home for two days because I've got double glazing coming in and that's probably the most middle-aged thing I'm ever going to say. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I've, I've got so many things. I'm a walking cliche. <laughs> things that are stressing me out at the moment we're going to be in Cancun or near, near Cancun next week for six nights in an all-inclusive resort and I'm trying to work out how we're going to fit everything in oh, it's very very stressful tell them what do you mean? It's all inclusive. You're going to fit every bit of food and drink they have in? Well, yeah, there's all the, all, the, all the food and drink and all of those sorts of things. But it, we're, we're staying in a place called Akamal, which is near Tulum, and there is so, so much to do. And six oh, days right. is an awesome amount of time to have there, but I think I'm going to need about three weeks or three months or well, knowing you lot, you'll get back in. here, then you'll go off to somewhere else, then you'll come back and you, you go, we're going back to Cancun, we didn't see enough of it. Mm. And I will still sit here in Sunbury. <laughs> Sat in Sunbury. Mm. Admiring your double glazing. Being warm and in summer being cool but not being anywhere else. <laughs> Just being. That's right. Just being. Just being. Yes. Oh, well, that's all right. I suppose we should introduce ourselves. I'm Schmitty. I'm Swanee. And I'm Clarky. And together we are Trial, trial by, by Wine. wine. <laughs> Very matter-of-fact. Well done. So what are we drinking? Well, my first can of Coke Zero for the day. Not the little. I think it's pretty piss poor, frankly, because you're not driving anywhere. You, you've, you've told <laughs> me before we started that you've got it all set up with other people being responsible for everything. If ever there was a chance for you to have a cheeky... Rose really? or something. You it's are tonight. also the person that I spoke to on Sunday when About I had the world's biggest hangover. <laughs> yes, so I'm not sure that you should be encouraging <laughs> oh, me quite so soon. Such a bad hangover that three days later you yeah. still can't bear the thought of it. Precisely. Right, okay. <laughs> I was, I was hoping that you had one of your sexy little glass bottles with you, but you're back to the cans. Oh, they're all gone. No, they're sold <laughs> yeah. out and, the, and all the bottles are gone. So I'm afraid it's back to the tin. Oh, well. Mm. Anyway. Oh, yeah. well, it's better than the buddy. It's certainly not as nice. There was a real difference. And those ones are like on the verb. Well, they were out of date by the time I drank it the other day. But they were still better just because they were in the glass. Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. And you lads, what are you drinking? We're having a uh, Big Red Duck, which is the uh, wine that we make. This one's the Sangiovese. Uh, very delicious. That you make, yeah. Mm, very nice. Very nice. 
I'm on the Mango Chutneys. Are you? Mango Chutneys. Okay, and whose story is it today? Well, I've got one, if you'd like to hear it. You may have heard that we've been doing a little bit of travel of late and I thought it would be good inspiration to try to find crimes from places we're visiting. I started Googling crimes in Iceland. I wondered if you might do that. Yeah, it's it's oh, quite amazing. God, isn't it like a whole genre. Yeah, and so you know, there's a, I'm sure there's a whole lot. All of those trolls. You should you should tap on the end of my cryptid crimes. <laughs> yeah. So we were in Iceland. Gosh, I don't know, a month and a bit ago, and and absolutely fell in love with it. It's quite an incredible place, rich in history, great natural wonders, as well as this story, which. In, in some way has almost become a bit like folklore and, and all of the locals know it. Now, I didn't run around asking the locals if they knew it, but through my research, it's become very clear that it's a very, very famous story. So I'm going to give you a little brief overview of the, the story. So the story focuses on the strange disappearance of two unrelated men and the subsequent investigations and lengthy interrogations that led to confessions from six different people. They were all convicted despite the missing men never being found. There being no witnesses to the crimes and no forensic evidence. Sorry, I don't understand. Neither do I. I don't understand either, <laughs> But are you intrigued? <laughs> and do you want to hear more? I am. Yes. yes. Okay. I was waiting for Siri to say, no, no, I yeah, don't. Yeah. Oh, oh, now I understand. <laughs> no, I'm out. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> let's jump into the timey-wimey machine and we're going to head back to 1974 Iceland. Mm-hmm. So whilst today Iceland is a tourist hotspot and full of amazing people and things to do. What an excellent year. Back then it was a very different story. Yes, Shmi, you are correct. Watching TV mm-hmm. was prohibited mm-hmm. on Thursdays. And throughout the month of July, dogs were banned in Reykjavik and beer was banned between 1915 and 1974. Roman Polanski once reported as saying about Reykjavik, it's probably okay if you are raised here and know nothing else. It had a reputation of being stormy and rainy <laughs> all the time. <laughs> From November to January, Iceland averages daylight for between four to five hours. Honestly, for us, the weather was superb. We were very, very lucky. But apparently this is what happens. So polar night is a meteorological phenomenon that happens during this time when it can be dark for 24 hours in a row. I mean, could you imagine? Conversely, in June, which is kind of when we were there, when the summer solstice occurs and they have midnight sun, whereby the sun doesn't really set, it provides a faint light typical of sunset. There's roughly 20 to 22 hours of daylight. See, I reckon I'd find that harder to deal with. It's it's interesting because... In the endless night. Mm. Yeah, mm. It's, it's really interesting. I mean, I find winter without all the sunlight really depressing, but when we were there in summer, mm. it's... You don't get any signals as to when your day is nearly done and so you keep going until you hit a wall and yeah. you're like, oh, why am I so tired and I just mm. need to fall into bed and, you know, it, it'll hit you mid-whatever mid it is you're doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. On the night of the 26th of January 1974, Germunda Einerson was out at a nightclub with several of his mates in Hafnafjordor. Now, I think we all know that Icelandic isn't one of my top ten languages. In fact, 
I really only have one language. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thought. So I'm going to butcher a whole lot of names. Apologies in advance, but I'll give it a red hot crack. Now you said that alcohol was introduced in 1974. It was so, beer. Yeah. Or was it just yeah. beer? It was well, just well, beer. So, so I'm not sure why why beer or was it all? Yeah, alcohol? no, no. So they they had 26 of January is early in that year. Yeah, yeah. So they had a ban on alcohol, and then they re- they removed some of that, but beer stayed banned. Beer actually stayed banned up until 1989 is my understanding, but I think in 1974 you could buy, or from 1974, you could buy low-strength beer. So they actually came up with a drink which was using the low-strength beer and adding a shot of moonshine to it to up the alcohol content. People are problem solvers. Wow. I mean, I can understand banning alcohol, but I don't understand why specifically. Well, it was really weird. They thought that beer would. a lot of those like northern places like spirits, right, because they use it to keep them warm and stuff. It's like a nearly medicinal slash a warm Yeah, no, no. They they were worried that beer would be like a gateway drug for alcohol. Bizarre. Wow. All right. Let's get back to the story. (laughs) I would have thought that's a mango chutney. (laughs) (laughs) The gateway. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, well, that would be with the sweetness of it, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I think Alcopops are much more likely to be a gateway mm. drug, if that's, you like. That's yeah. probably why they gave up on beer once West Coast Coolers hit the scene in, what, 1986 or whatever. <laughs> they went, uh... So Germa de Einerson was out at a nightclub with several of his mates in Hafner Fjordor, which is a port town about 10 kilometres south of Reykjavik. Germander was an 18-year-old labourer who liked a drink and a laugh with his mates, and on this particular night he got very drunk and decided to walk the 10 kilometres home. 10-kilometre walk when you're drunk, it's a long walk. But at the time it was freezing cold (laughs) and there was about a metre of snow on the ground. I don't know about you two, but the thought of being blind drunk and walking 10 kilometres through a metre of snow sounds particularly horrendous. I don't think you can. Knowing me, I'd get about three feet, fall over and wet myself. Mm. Particularly drunk. because I can't manage soft snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd just be falling over and then I'd laugh so much I'd pee myself. And then I'd be like, oh, someone just pick me up, take me back to the club. Yeah. <laughs> 10 kilometres in that is ridiculous. I can't do 10, well, I can do 10Ks, but I wouldn't want to, uh, and not in those conditions. I must say, I did, oh, because I haven't done my but, sources. But, you know, he's from Iceland, he's tough. I haven't done my sources. I'm going to have to mm. go through oh. those. Two for two. You didn't do them a- in the last time either. Yeah. <laughs> Swanee had to tell you off last time. Yeah, whoops. Well, I was going to say, I did. I can't remember that. I, did watch a podcast, sorry, watch a podcast, watch a Netflix doc, and they showed him walking down the road, not in the metre of snow. So he obviously was clever enough to stick to the road, not the, the hard road. Oh, the road. right. Okay. 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 That makes so much more sense. It would have taken so long. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, my sources, this is, this is one of those stories that Wikipedia didn't put together nicely for me, and I don't want to sound like I'm dissing them because they do such a good it's job rude. of it, but it meant that I had to go to a whole lot of sources and try to pull it together. So, of course, I've got Wikipedia. Thank you. I've got BBC. I've got retrospectjournal.com. I've got vice.com. I've got Wondery Red-Handed Podcast, Iceland Magazine, blog.howlanders.com, iacsi.hi.si, grapevine.is, theguardian.com, out of thin air, Netflix documentary, historicmysteries.com, and Enclair Podcast. Yeah, look, it's a bit light for research. I'd like to see you do a bit more work on this one. <laughs> it was so, so <laughs> challenging to put it together. Anyway, there we go. So back to the story. He's walking down the road, metre of snow on either side. It's freezing cold. He's blind drunk. What could go wrong? 
Well, there are several versions of what happened on his way home. And as we've seen in other cases from the 70s, the details often vary. So I'll share with you the most simplistic one that I found. On his way home, one driver spotted him walking unsteadily with another man in a yellow jacket, trying to hitch a ride. A short while later, now alone, he almost fell in front of another vehicle. The motorist drove on, leaving him in the snow. That was the last time he was seen alive. The the authorities searched for him for weeks. However, despite their efforts, he was never found. Um, And it's important at the time to to state, I guess, that uh, disappearances were quite common. Not, well, I say quite common, I should say not uncommon. And eventually it was written off as a mystery. So there was no body ever found. There was no evidence of any kind of foul play. He was just never seen again. Ten months later, on the night of November the 19th, 1974, Gefner Einerson disappeared. So now they both have this, the same surname. You might have picked that. It's because uh, Iceland works on a patronymic naming system rather than a family name. So they actually, the name Einarsson means that both men were the sons of fathers named Einar as opposed to it being any kind of relation. And so Iceland has lots of Einars, so they have lots of men who are Einarsson. Gerfner was a 32-year-old family man with a wife and two children. He was a relatively private person whose life revolved around his two children and the occasional drink with friends. That night, Gerfner was at home with his friend watching TV while his wife was at the library. At one point, he asked his friend for a lift as he had to meet someone. Apparently, he had to meet them alone and he joked to his friend that he had better be armed for the meeting. And of course, his friend took this to be a joke. However, Gerfner did not meet anyone there and returned home around 10.15pm without his friend. So his friend dropped him off. He went to have this meeting, didn't meet anyone, came home. Then the phone rang and his son answered the phone and someone on the other end asked his asked to speak to Gerfner. So his son passed his phone to his dad and he was overheard to say, I already came before agreeing to go again. He grabbed his jacket and pipe and headed for the door. When questioned by his son as to where he was going, he did not answer. And when, uh, when his son asked if he could come along, Gerfner said no. No, the prostitutes don't like us bringing our children. <laughs> so he he drove his... I already came, but sure, I'll do it again. <laughs> How many times? He, he drove his red mm. Ford Cortina to a cafe in Keflavik, about 50 kilometres out of Reykjavik, to meet the man from the phone call. He did not return home. Is that a long way? It's 50 kilometres. Yeah, so Keflavik is where the the airport is. So it's that kind of airport distance out of town. He did not return home and the next morning his car was found near the cafe, unlocked and with keys still in the ignition. He was never seen again. Oh. Unlike Germander's alien abduction, right? Unlike Germander's disappearance, Mm. there were were lots of questions in relation to Giffener going missing. Things like who was the man on the other end of the phone, uh, who was he supposed to meet at the cafe and why, and had he gotten himself into some kind of trouble. The police investigated the disappearance. Oh, I don't know. I think there were some questions about the first guy. Where did? He, where is his body? What happened to him? Why has yeah. he disappeared? Well, so, so there was all of those about the first one and all of those yeah. about the second <laughs> one as well, but, but there was a lot more tangible Second one was evidence. slightly more mysterious. Yeah, I so, think. Yeah. and the reason I say that, the first one who just went missing, that was not uncommon because of the weather and the lava fields, there's big crevices and, you know, people 
can easily fall in and never be seen again. But there was actually Jesus. some suspicious stuff going on oh. in the second one. Um, so the police investigated the disappearance intensely for weeks and months without finding any leads. They poured through financial records and letters and questioned his wife. However, they could not find anyone who had a grudge against him and there was no evidence of outstanding debts. There were, however, rumours of his involvement in an illegal alcohol smuggling operation, but there was no evidence of this. Mm. He's seen... The alcohol. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) They should have made beer legal earlier. He, He just seemed to be a typical Icelandic family man. So an extensive search was made of Keflavik Harbour, the rugged coastline and the desolate lava fields of the Raycanes, but there was no trace of Geirfinna. The inquiry um, focused on a man who had phoned him from the cafe in Keflavik Harbour, um, obviously trying to find out who that might have been, um, why he wanted to see him, all those sorts of things. It was still with nothing and there was a nationwide hunt to find him, but even in a nation of approximately 220,000 people, he could not be found. After months of effort, there was still no body, no forensic evidence and no witnesses. And in the summer of 1975, the investigation was wound down. However, the high-profile nature of the case meant that it was often talked about by the locals and rumours started to surface that a man named Saver Chiselski knew something about the disappearances. So Saver was a Saver, did you say? Were you correcting my pronunciation? No, I said was his name Saverson, but I was wrong. Uh, well, have, uh, no, 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 I have it. Well, yeah. have it. Well, have it. Where's the son and his surname? He sounds like he's an interloper. Yeah. Where's he from? Well, yeah, he's, not so, he's an immigrant. So Saver was a young Polish man. It does. He sounds Czech or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Polish. Right well, well picked up. Well we've picked up. We've learned something and we've used it. We've put our knowledge into practice. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. He's not a local. He's not a local. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> uh, well done. Well done. So he was known to police as a petty criminal who'd been caught importing cannabis from Denmark. Now, if you think about Iceland in 1974, I don't think it was that uncommon for people to be on a little bit of hooch. Saver was kind of this dark, moody kind of bloke. If you think of um, Iceland at the time, a lot of tall, red or blonde people and he's, you know, dark brooding, so stands out a lot. In December 1975, the police were investigating an unrelated case of embezzlement, which led them to Saver's tiny apartment in Hafnafjordor. Saver and his girlfriend Erla Bolatadir were alleged to have embezzled more than one million Icelandic krona, which at the time was about 12,000 Australian. So a decent amount of money. Buy a house with that in Australia then. One million <laughs> krona. <laughs> I'm a millionaire. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> they arrested Saver and Erla, taking them both away from their 11-week-old daughter. Erla was able to make a phone call to her sister, I oh. think, and she took the daughter. So Erla and Saver were separated and questioned extensively about the embezzlement. And I'd read somewhere that they both made this pact whereby if they did get caught, they would not confess to anything. They would just play dumb right to the end. Erla was about 20 at the time and she was subjected to heavy interrogation. She was told that she would be held in custody for 30 days on suspicion of the crime and she was left in a cell for six days and nights. The police told her that Saiva had said that she was the one who masterminded the crime and whilst Erla was surprised by this, she believed it. She eventually confessed to the crime 
and was to be released until trial. She's obviously super keen to get back to her daughter, who she hasn't seen now in a week. No contact with anyone because she's been in, in the cell for six days and six nights other than the um, ongoing interrogation. As she was uh, getting ready to leave, the police officer showed her a photo of Germander Ineson and asked her if she knew him. Erla later said she was really tired and also trying to work with the police and she told them that she'd remembered him from a school party at a girlfriend's house years before. She'd thought him handsome and was flattered that he decided to talk to her. The police then asked her about the night of his disappearance. Erla recalled that she had a nightmare that night that involved Saver and his friends whispering outside her room. She could hear them whispering, is she awake? Is she asleep? And then she woke up. So what? I hear you ask. So the police latch onto this as some piece of evidence of the murder of Gamunda. The chief of the investigation said to her, something terrible happened that night in the apartment. You witnessed it and you cannot recall it because you were traumatised by it. She remembers the head of investigation becoming very intense, getting right up into her face. We are going to help you recall everything. Yeah, here we go, Brendan Dassey. You will not yeah. be able to leave here. We're going to tell you what you need to remember. Until you confess. Well, you will not be able to leave here until you tell us what happened to Gamunda. It was no idle threat. No, until we tell you what we think happened to him and we tell you what we think <laughs> you did and then you falsely remember that and confess it. Ella, Ella was warned that for serious crimes there was no limit to the time she could be held in solitary confinement. She was then sent back to her cell to see what she could, inverted commas, remember. Alone in her cell that night, Erla mm. couldn't sleep. She kept trying to work out what was real and what was her imagination. One thought kept returning to her. Is it possible they killed someone in the apartment and I saw the whole thing and I can't remember? During the following nine days, there were long interviews without a lawyer being present. Her interrogators were generally pleasant and helpful, saying they wanted to unlock her memories. Yes, they usually are. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> She was, in her words, mm -hmm. just desperate to get out of there and get back to my baby, she says. From the fragments of, the, of her dream, the police began to construct an alternate reality. The questioning was relentless and went into specific detail. Questions like, why was the bedsheet in the bin? Had it been used to wrap the body? Earl was trying to picture everything they told her. At a certain point, the effort to visualise the details described by police produced in her mind a picture that was vivid enough to seem real. Mm -hmm. Now, the bedsheet, mm. which hadn't previously figured in Ella's dream, was not only imaginable but memorable too. When the police asked, could it have been like this, suddenly all things seemed possible. Earla later stated, I couldn't deny that it could have been. Somehow between me and them, this story formed, and I never knew, did it come from me or did it come from them? After one interview, which went on for more than 10 hours, the police prepared a statement which Erla signed, saying she had seen Saver and three of his friends with a body wrapped in a bedsheet, the body of Germunda Einerson. Upon signing the statement, Erla was released. The police then showed the statement to Saver and began interrogating him about his role in the death of Germunda. After ongoing interrogation, he suddenly admitted he might, after all, know something about the death of Germunda. He started talking, admitting his part and going on to implicate his closest friends. First was Christian Vidison, a big fella who had a reputation as a tough guy. Friends from the time say he was actually a gentle giant and looked out for his clever but smaller friend, Saver. 
Christian had had a series of temporary jobs and had a police record for drug offences and burglary. The second of Saver's names was Trigvi Lakeson. Trigvi was a very physical man and he was someone to be avoided when he'd been drinking. Like Christian, Trigvi drifted in and out of seasonal work and had served time in jail for petty crimes. Whilst both Christian and Trigvi were no strangers to prison, this was a murder case, and after their arrest they were kept in isolation where their only human contact was with their interrogators. They were told if they refused to cooperate. Sorry, what's the maximum penalty in Iceland at the time? Is it life imprisonment for this yes. kind of crime or yeah. is it capital punishment? No, no, life imprisonment. As far as I can understand, there's no Evidence. limit. No, no, no limit on how long they can hold you whilst they're investigating the crime. So they were told if they refused to cooperate, their solitary confinement would be extended from weeks to months, and that it could go on for years. See, it's not holding you. Like I think here, if you are arrested, suspected of doing something, they can hold you for a period of time while the investigation continues, and then they put and once they charge, so a period of time, and then they charge you, and then you're either bailed or you're held in custody until whatever hearings. Yeah, I think there's a. a but not in solitary right. confinement. Mm. It's the solitary uh-huh. confinement bit that I don't understand. Like surely that is against whatever human rights treaty, blah blahs that exist. Yeah, That's so crazy. Really anyway, interesting go and, and good pickup. I'm sure you'll get to yeah, it. Yeah, good pickup. Mm-hmm. They've been told that it could go on for years. So after several weeks of continuous lengthy interrogations, Christian and Trigvi admitted to killing Gamunda in a fight over a payment for a bottle of spirits. So remember there were talks of alcohol with Gifuna. Now alcohol's played into mm-hmm. the Gamunda thing. Of course, no evidence of them. Because alcohol's the yeah, devil. Well, more so, I think, when we're talking about the police potentially planting evidence, that's an e- easy mm-hmm. way to do it. Oh, okay, right. So the final accomplice, Albert Klan Skafterson, was a gentle man whose only previous contact with the police had been for cannabis Skafter. possession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his dad's name, Skafter. Yeah. It was his dad's yep. name. Yeah. <laughs> he struggled. Well done. Skafter, oh, we have totally excellent listening now. and yeah, learning. I'm impressed, you two. You're Snaps. on fire tonight. <laughs> Snaps. You've got skills. He struggled to cope with the isolation of interrogation. So he was obviously brought in and uh, kept in solitary confinement and also interrogated. So he then admitted to transporting Gamunda's body to the lava fields where it was hidden deep within one of the gaping cracks. And so you probably haven't seen much of the lava fields, but they're a huge... Mm. I've seen them on... Uh, yeah, so, I mean, yeah. you, you generally yeah. see that sort of, you know, remote, barren, black kind of thing, but there's big crevices in there as well. Yeah, no, the huge the huge crevices. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Josh Gates, my secret naughtiness, was doing something in Iceland. The oh, other yeah. Day. I, I was yeah. going to say I know that name. Yeah. Secret naughtiness. So, so, so with Gamunda's disappearance now effectively solved as a murder case, police begin to wonder if the suspects from the first case were involved in Giefner's disappearance. Two sure, disappearances could well be linked. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, there had been rumours that Saver had information on the are. second man's disappearance. Mm-hmm. In January 1976, with absolutely no evidence the police visit Erla about the disappearance of Giefner. 
I mean, you know, it worked. Remember that time? Yeah. Do you remember that time, Erla? Do you remember that time? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you yeah. don't remember it now, you will in 10 we'll weeks do. when we've yeah. had you in solitary confinement, taken you for your baby and probably given you sleep deprivation, et cetera, et yeah. cetera. You'll remember. So funny you say that. Erla recalls how um, he sat on the <laughs> sofa and told <laughs> her, we have reason to believe that you've experienced something traumatic concerning Geefner's disappearance. And we're going to help you remember. Oh. I mean, let's face it, that strategy's worked for the police the first time. Mm. Why wouldn't it work again? Erla makes a statement saying that she and Saver had gone to the docks where Saver and others had quarrelled with Geefner over smuggling alcohol for nightclubs. See, there's that alcohol, alcohol thing popping up again. Mm-hmm. Four more men were interviewed by police in an attempt to find those responsible for the murder. And again, they extract confessions. However, this time the confessions are conflicting as to how Geffner was actually murdered. So if if you think back to the first confession, Erla confessed and then that confession was um, used and presented to the other suspects, so it was all the same confession that they gave out to. This time everyone's confessed Mm. to doing it but completely different ways. So initially Erla confesses to having killed a man with a shotgun. Saver later says that he did it. He claims that Geffner had died after falling from a boat following a fight with him and his friends. But this story changes. Instead now, Geffner was killed in a boatyard filled with scrap and then he was buried in the lava fields. So a few different versions, which means that they've got no body, no evidence of murder, and whilst they've got a whole lot of confessions, they're all conflicting so they can't be used as evidence. Erla was arrested and detained in May 1976 for her role in killing Geffner. The pressure was mounting. Which didn't happen. But all right. What's that? Which didn't happen. Correct. But okay. Yeah. So the pressure was mounting and police were desperate. At one point they got a medium in uh, to see if they could find the body of Geffner, but without success. <laughs> so what do you do when you've got no bodies, no evidence of murder, but a whole lot of confessions that are conflicting? You do what the Icelandic government did and recruit a German policeman to wrap up the case. His name was Karl Schutz. Security matters were his specialty rather than criminal investigations. And he was brought in predominantly to get a collection of consistent confessions from the suspects. By the summer of 1976, four suspects had been in solitary confinement for half a year (laughs) inside the cramped cells of Sidamuli Prison. Christian and Saver had admitted to killing Geffner along with a mysterious foreigner they kept mentioning. They'd been joined in custody by Erla, who was being treated as an accessory to Geffner's murder. Schutz began looking for the foreigner who Saver and Christian had implicated in killing. Could he have led the group on the night of Geffner's murder? The the search brought police... Probably not because he doesn't exist. (laughs) Well, you know what they're going to do, right? I'm so not buying any of this shit, but yeah, go on. The the search brought police to Gujon. Here we go. And and once I've said it, you've got to try to let me know what his dad's name is. Scarfordinson. Gujon Scarfordinson. Oh, good old (laughs) Scarfordinson. It's Scarfordinson because it's two S's. Scarfordinson. Scarfordinson, yeah, yeah. A 32-year-old former teacher. How's it going? (laughs) Oh, no. So with his dark hair and swarthy looks, he had always stood out and it was this that earned him the foreigner nickname, which would later implicate him. Ah, he's not even a foreigner. This is bullshit. 
Okay. Gujon had embraced the 1970s. He just looked a bit different. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. all it takes. Sounds racist to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Gujon had okay. embraced the 1970s with an easygoing attitude to sex and drugs. I like that as a phrase. I've <laughs> got an easygoing attitude to sex and drugs. It doesn't say he does either of them. He's just fine amongst them. No, just I'm all right with it. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, so much so that he had let save a, a former pupil of his smuggle drugs into Iceland using his car. The police believed Sova had called on him to drive to Keflavik to meet and kill Gierfinner. Gujon wasn't like the other suspects. He liked and respected the police and really wanted to solve the case to help the nation. He recalls the police telling him that uh, he was the only one who knew all about it and could tell the truth about it. He was the one. He wanted to help, but for whatever reason, his memory was fuzzy. He couldn't remember what he was doing in November 1974 or indeed for much of that year. Four decades on, Gujon says Carl Schutz, the German detective leading the inquiry, wasn't deterred by this. The main thing with a good question like Carl Schultz is he was both priest and psychologist. He would say things like, you should confess because you'll feel better afterwards. There's a burden taken off your shoulder if you confess. Tell us the truth and you will feel better forever and God will look upon you with a blessing. That was his philosophy and he got very far with it. Carl Schultz was convinced Gujon and the other suspects in custody were guilty. Now he had to get them to give detailed, consistent confessions of exactly what had happened. So uh, Schutz turned up the heat on the interrogations. For example, uh, Saver coped badly in solitary confinement, but despite this, his interrogations frequently exceeded the six-hour legal limit and he remained in confinement for, guess how many days? 60? 741. 200, excuse me? 741. How many? Two years. Now, all of those weren't solitary, but 741 days. His lawyer was rarely present during his questioning, and for two months, the light in his cell was kept on for 24 hours a day. There's that sleep deprivation. Uh huh. Yep. And okay. they were also um, banging on uh, chairs and stuff. Yeah, like on, no, yeah. not on chairs. I banging like steel on steel to keep him awake at night as well. God. Gujon, when initially interviewed, denied knowing anything about the case. After extensive interviews for 25 hours, he began to comp- contemplate his role in the Giffner case, suggesting he perhaps travelled to Keflavik on the day of his disappearance. However, he could not remember encountering Giffner. The police took advantage of his mental state and used it as a tool for cultivating his confession. His diary, which he kept whilst he was in confinement, shows later the further deterioration of his health during his solitary confinement. I'm all breaking down and hardly recognise my name with certainty, he's written. He began to distrust his memory and instead trust his investigators. Carl Schutz told him, you should confess because you'll feel better afterwards, reinforcing the police's manipulation of his questioning. Over Erla's time in custody, she had told him she knew something about Giffen's case. He presented her with the final piece of the jigsaw, what they had done with Giffen's body. Schutz was convinced it had been put in Erla's Land Rover and taken to the red lava fields where a grave had been dug. The body had then been burned while Erla stood by and watched it being done. Schutz leaned over the desk and told her, if you sign the report, you have a chance of being released, she recalls. She says at one point she lost control, ashtrays and coffee cups and books and she threw everything and went berserk until they held her to stop her from doing it. So she just full on cracked it. But then she said after the outburst, she capitulated. 
She signed her confession telling how she had disposed of the body. When she was arrested, she'd been suffering from postnatal depression and was desperate to get back to her child who was by now a toddler. After months in solitary confinement, this timid girl decided saying yes was easier than holding out. So where was the body? To try to find the body, Earl was taken out to the lava fields, sometimes on her own and sometimes with Saver. She said that they would all be walking across all the rocks and asked, could it have been here? And she was just going, well, maybe, I don't know. This happened far more with other suspects. Over a two-year period, they were taken out on at least 60 separate occasions to look for the two victims. 60? 60, 60. Yeah, yeah. They're on it? Yeah. Gujon actually looked forward to the chance to see the outside world. So he's in solitary consignment. It's a nice day out. Yeah. 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 Can I get out of here? Let's go for a walk in the lava field. Sure. I'll go look for a body that doesn't exist. Sure. Yeah. 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 He remembers driving in the country with the detective looking for Paul Giffener, where he could be, which came to nothing. But they were nice drives. <laughs> <laughs> That's his words. I realised it was a quote. <laughs> it wasn't just the graves location Gujon was struggling with. He was trying to piece together where he was when Giffen was killed. He was given drugs by the prison doctor to help him sleep and relax, and it marked a change in his attitude. On the 8th of December 1976, he was the last to confess to the killing of Giffen Imerson. He recalls... I was asked, were you in the yard of Keflavik that particular night? And I said, yes, I was. That's my confession. All six had now confessed to their involvement in the two murders. Mm, I wonder what that drug was. <laughs> after an investigation, mm. we'll get onto that a little bit later if you like. So uh, after an investigation which had lasted more than a year, there was, however, no physical evidence and the suspect's memories were hazy. Yet they had all told police and signed statements that, yes, they'd killed either Gierfana or Gamunda or helped dispose of their bodies. With the last of, of the confessions secured, a press conference was held. Carl Schutz told the press conference the crimes had been committed by a small group of petty criminals who used every opportunity they could to get their hands on money. He detailed what the prosecution believed had happened. Giffener was killed on dry land among the empty rusting hulls of fishing boats perched on iron blocks, surrounded by detritus of repairs. He was killed by mistake. He met these people and told them stories. He had alcohol. He could sell them. However, when they realised he couldn't deliver the booze, they got angry. They didn't plan to kill him, but that's what happened. The investigators said Giffener's body had been taken to Reykjavik and hidden in the cellar of Christian's grandmother's house for several days before being taken to the lava fields where it was put in a shallow grave and burned. Schutz announced to reporters, it is beyond a reasonable doubt, as we criminal experts like to put it, that it's safe to assume it's an open and shut case. We criminal experts. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So in December 1977, the court handed down its verdict on the six suspects in both cases. So I'll go through the suspects and I'll tell you how long they were in prison and how long they were in isolation. So Saver Chiselsky found guilty of killing both men, was originally sentenced to life, but that was reduced by the High Court to 17 years. He spent 1,533 days in custody, 615 in isolation. Christian Vidar Vidarsson, what was his dad's name? Vidavid. <laughs> No, huh? his, Vida, no Vida. His, sorry, sorry. No, his Christian Vida is his middle name 
and Vidasen is his surname. That is, now we're getting ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you call yourself John Johnson? There are people who are called right. that. Okay. So Christian was found guilty of killing both men and sentenced to 16 years in prison. He spent 1,522 days in prison, 503 in isolation. Trigvi Lifson was convicted for killing Gumunda and given a 13-year sentence. He spent 1,522 days in custody, 655 in isolation. I think I stated later on, but 655 days in isolation is thought to be the longest anyone's been held in isolation outside of Guantanamo Bay. Albert Scafterson, convicted for helping to hide Gamunda's body, given a one-year sentence and spent 87 days in custody. Gurjon Scafferdinson, convicted for killing Gifna and given a 10-year sentence, spent 1,202 days in custody, 412 in isolation. And our friend Erla spent 239 days in custody and was given a three-year prison sentence for perjury. Do you want to hear about that? Mm-hmm. According to the prosecution, she wrongly implicated her half-brother, Ina, and three of his friends. So they've determined that her statements about these four are false, but the rest of her confessions are true. Uh, How's that? Yeah, she wrongly implicated everyone. Yeah, right. into it. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she's the problem. It's not, it's not you. It's, sorry, it's not us. It's you. So the, mo- the months pass by and then the years, and one by one, each of the convicts are released from prison. With time and reflection, some of them fight to reopen the cases, stating that there has been an awful miscarriage of justice, but the Supreme Court rules that it will not rehear the case. Nearly two decades pass by, during which time the murders and convictions are constantly discussed by the media and by the people. Finally, in 1998, the then Prime Minister of Iceland, and I bet you can tell me what his dad's name is, David Odson, (laughs) (laughs) criticises the investigation. Odd Odson. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Uh, criticises the investigation and prosecution procedures and notes that he is disappointed that the case is not being reopened. It later transpires that he had actively been sponsoring Saver's attempts to appeal the case, though ultimately none of the efforts would succeed. However, even with his support, there is no movement. It is deemed that there is no new evidence to support a retrial. Yet another decade passes by. 35 years after the first alleged murder in 2009, Trigvi passes away from cancer. Two years later, in 2011, Saver also dies. To the very end of his life, he continued to protest his innocence, but it is in his death rather than anything he was able to do in his life that renews interest in the case. Journalist Helga Arnadotia starts researching the case from a different angle and discovers that Trigvi's daughter, Kristen... Dotia. Dotia. Does Dotia mean daughter? Ah, yeah, that's it. Yes, yes, well done, yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah, correct. So her dad's name was Anna. Listening and learning. Well done. This is good. (laughs) This isn't the most informative podcast going round. (laughs) Trigvi's daughter, Kristen, had secretly kept hold of her father's prison diaries in which Trigvi detailed his innocence and the many doubts he had over his guilt. Of all of the suspects, Trigvi spent the longest in solitary confinement, a total of 655 days. During that time, he kept detailed journals in an attempt to maintain sanity and remind himself he was innocent. Now, there was talk of other people who kept diaries and those being 
taken away by the guards. However, Trigvi found an ally, a priest who believed in him and helped to smuggle the dozens of journals out of the prison. Returning them when Trigvi was released after serving eight years in jail. They lay in his basement in a box until one day they were discovered by his curious teenage daughter, Kristen. She says she started reading them. She took two or three at a time up to her room, kept them under her mattress and didn't tell anybody about them. She knew she wasn't supposed to be reading them. On the cover of one journal, her father had written, this is a diary that an innocent man is keeping in here regarding a big case that he's wrongly accused for, but the truth will always come out even if it is late. They record his daily routine and his growing frustration at his incarceration. They can't keep me here any longer. I can't wait to go to court so I can tell them what really happened. I confess to this just to make everything stop and get out of here and see my friends and see my family. The journals also detail the drugs that he was given more or less daily, including diazepam and mogadon to help him sleep and calm down. (laughs) Funnily enough... These drugs can also cause amnesia. Mm. Kristen says he tried to resist their administration. He's saying things like, I'm done with this and I'm not going to take them. And other days he's saying, it's better if I just take them and don't make a fuss about it. And it's better to be completely numb here. One day, years later, Trigvi destroys the diaries in an attempt to forget the past. But there are three that remain hidden under Kristen's bed. She kept them, not telling a soul, not even her mother. When Helga comes knocking on her door in 2011, Helga's the Icelandic journalist, Anna Dottir, so Anna's daughter. But which Anna? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know which Anna we're talking about. I know it's a population of 210,000, but still there's got to be more than one Anna. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Who's your daddy? So (laughs) Kristen felt that she could trust Helga and showed her the diaries. Helga was reading them and could hardly believe what she was reading. Recognising their importance, Helga immediately flies to London to show them to forensic psychologist Gisli Gujonson. Go on. It's a good name. Good old Gujons, son. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so Gisley had previously worked in high-profile miscarriages of justice cases such as the Birmingham Six and was an expert in false confessions. Gisley reads the journal and identifies that the accused may have been suffering from memory distrust syndrome, which he describes as a condition where people develop profound distrust of their memory and become suggestible, <coughs> sorry, and become susceptible to relying on external cues and suggestions from others. Essentially, the investigator or officer or whoever knowingly or otherwise, erodes someone's confidence in their own recollections so completely that they end up having more faith in the investigator's claims about the events than they have about their own lived experiences of it. Think reverse gaslighting. They're brainwashed. Correct. They've been brainwashed. And I presume whoever's looking at that has access to the amount of days that they've been in solitary confinements. They'd be able to see the big picture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so these, these, remember, these people have been protesting the injustice of it for quite some time, but because they've confessed to it, they're going, mm-hmm. well, there's no, no new evidence here. So rather than adamantly saying something never happened, the figures um, in power or with authority claim over and over that something did happen. And finally, due to external pressure, the person is persuaded that he or she has committed a crime of which he or she is innocent, but typically the person has no clear memory recollection of committing the crime but accepts that they've done it. 
So remember I said <clears throat> others had written diaries. One piece mm -hmm. I read said that Trigvis were the only ones, but then there was another piece that said that Gujon had kept diaries as well in his 412 days in solitary confinement. And Gisley saw those as a perfect example of memory distrust syndrome. Added to this, Trigvi was also the last one to retract his confession and he didn't finally take that step until 1996. And even before his death, he still had no idea whether or not he was involved in the crime. I think for me, um, the case is a fascinating and kind of scary insight into how our memories can be distorted. It's terrifying. Yeah. Yep. We all think or believe that we know what we've done or what we have not done um, and what we are and are not capable of. So how do you completely distort and destroy someone's memory of a murder to the point that they can no longer be sure about even whether they were involved? Our mate Gisley charts five steps along the road to creating a full false memory of committing a crime. Just in case you should ever want to do this, um, yeah. Schmitty, I know that you've done occupational violence training, but I reckon if you try yeah. this in the workplace, they wouldn't be up with it yet. occupational brainwashing training. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, true, true. Yeah. So the five steps are trigger, plausibility, acceptance, that the event may have happened, reconstruction of the event in their imagination, and the last one is the resolution of the true memory coming back, which is an important one. So let's apply that to the case here. So trigger, the trigger is developed through social confinement, the investigator's guilt presumption and persuasive interrogation and the high emotional intensity. Investigators use leading questions like, do you recall or is it possible that or do you think that? And then they would provide some situation or other, hypotheses, guesses, pure fabrications. Effectively, this created a no whole comment. series of potential narratives <laughs> that could later be developed depending no on comment. which provided the best and most complete traction with all the suspects. And Schmitty, you're bang on. So remember, Reggie would always say, never say a word. If you no get arrested comment. for something, mm -hmm. no comment. I want to speak to a no lawyer. No comment. Where's my lawyer? Yep. yep. <laughs> Keep that in mind always. So plausibility. Um, is the next step. So once the trigger is established, there are so many stories to choose from and the individuals and their whereabouts and their activities are forced to fit into narratives where they can. Conceivably, just barely, maybe, have been involved in the murder. So if you think about Erla's confession and where she, um, in, she said that there were four people who did it who weren't, I'm assuming those four people didn't fit the narrative and so they were found to be innocent, hence the perjury. That's right, yeah. Hmm. Or they actually were alibied by other people. Yeah, yeah, po quite possibly too. <laughs> yep. Trigvi's pre-existing vulnerabilities made him especially easy to coerce. His personality was one of high compliance and low self-esteem. He had great trust and respect for authority and he had a vivid imagination. Moreover, he had a good faith in the investigators and felt a strong sense of importance that he could help save the case if he gave them the information they wanted. He was essentially a prime target oh. for suggestibility. It was a patsy. Yeah. <laughs> patsy, <laughs> yes. Uh, so then... Well, he wasn't set up, but it was set up by the police. But yeah. yeah, yeah, correct. Acceptance. So that's the next step. Once a version of what has transpired is finalised, the accused needs to accept these events. This is, of course, increased as each hears that the others are now agreeing that, yes, maybe they were involved after all, and hence the strategy of keeping everyone in custody and in solitary confinement. Didn't they have anyone with them at any point? So 
showing them how to? Yeah, it's a really good question. Where they lawyered up? Yeah, and, and so yeah. they all were. But I saw a stat, and and I may have the number slightly wrong, but the magnitude is is pretty spot on. So it was something like one of them had been interrogated yeah. for over a hundred hours, and of those hundred hours, the yeah. lawyer was present for three of them. Jeez. Yep. Like it's. So, no, they didn't really have a lawyer. Was that legal? Well, no. <laughs> no, So, but, but it wasn't known. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. not moving so, bloody so things, Iceland at this point. No, so things that were legal is that they could hold them indefinitely because it's a serious charge. But not to interrogate them from 100 correct. hours without a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, mm-hmm. My understanding is that that's correct. That's not. It's an awful lot of um, time and it's been... Do you know what I mean? It's not like that it was all wrapped up and they did it within a week or two. Ten yeah, hours yeah. or twenty hours. No, it's it's the sheer amount of time that it's taken them to get to the point where they had what they needed to say, okay, they've all, you know, confessed. That should have been ringing alarm bells, if nothing else. Yeah. Right? We got it, we got the confessions. It only took us, you know, two and a half thousand years. days. Mm. Yeah, 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 you know. Who's in charge here? That's yeah, the German. So, but but that'd be Swedish. She'd be like, "Who's in charge?" Well, it's before what? he was involved, even right? It's yeah, he was going to wrap it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, no, well, that's yeah. true. That's true. He was like, yeah. Get, yeah. But but so if you think about it, you've got two people who've gone missing. How are you on that? Path? Absolutely no evidence yeah. of murder. I was reading somewhere that there's a few things that no blood, no. Um, yeah, uh, like there's a, pl- a yeah. place. So they'll have a place where so they might see blood and go, "Someone's been killed here," and therefore use that as evidence of murder. Or they might have a murder weapon, mm. or there might be a really strong motive yeah. whereby you know a husband's just increased his life insurance policy and they've got a history of yeah. fighting and yeah, now the yeah. wife's gone missing. But there's all those sorts of things that may or may not happen. None of that was was here. So even when they first started questioning. Earlier, there is absolutely zero evidence of the fact that there is a murder, but they're determined to prove that there was. Um, anyway, so resolution of the truth is the next one. So lastly, oh sorry, no, reconstruction is the next one. So in the fourth step, we have reconstruction of the event in their memory. And remember, the police repeatedly took the suspects to the supposed crime scenes both to search for the mm-hmm. body and to reenact their various stories until they achieved some sort of agreement. <laughs> until they created a memory. So, for, yeah, and so, of course, yeah. you know, 100 days after you've uh-huh. gone to that place, you remember being there, which plays nicely into yeah. the, the building of the memory. the things, so maybe I did do it. Yeah, yeah. and there's also a photo of one of them acting out his role in killing someone. So he's got the detective around the neck looking like he's going to slash his throat or something. So, again, complete fiction, but it starts to play in his memory as, oh, maybe that did happen. I was there. I remember doing that. And therefore, yep, that's uh, that's what's happened. It's incredible. This all comes down to a problem of not having enough alcohol because before we started this podcast tonight, Carla and I were talking about when, what is it, Swanee, if you have blood alcohol or something spikes, you, your brain doesn't even form a memory at all. Yeah. So they should have drunk more and then they wouldn't have false memories. They wouldn't have Is that why I can't remember what happened the night before? Yes. Someone who shall remain nameless. Oh, it's happened to me. Had a little Don't... experience recently where she couldn't remember something that happened in a night that she remembers other parts of the night. Mm. Nothing terrible happened, but I have no mm. recollection. And I've been doing a bit of reading it's when your blood yourself. alcohol level. Yeah, I but know. We were so, I've had the same experience. And it, when your blood yeah. alcohol level goes up 
super high, super fast, your brain doesn't. I can't make remember the last time that happened to me. Oh my god! See what I did? <laughs> Bunching. See, he's piss fit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not- no, he means anyway. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, exactly. Jack was funnier when you have to explain. Oh no. Yeah. Anyway, so, <laughs> so so the last step, and as I said to you before, this I think to me is the most important one. It's the resolution of the truth, right? So if you've if you've gone through all of this and now you've got memories of things and you can't work out whether or not it happened, there's got to be something that can prove to you that it didn't happen. Gisler's conclusions describe how memory distrust syndrome appears to have been a prevalent factor in the false confessions of all the suspects. This was, was caused by the inhumane investigation procedures used at the time. Within three hours of Gisley reading the diaries, he goes on record to say that the case should be reopened. And two weeks later, a government inquiry is announced. The inquiry spent 18 months looking at all available evidence and its report last year produced a damning conclusion that the confessions were unreliable and therefore false. Having looked at the evidence of their confinement and interrogations, Gisley has reached his own conclusions. These individuals had absolutely no knowledge of what happened. They were just trying to appease the police. Mm. They were trying to be cooperative because they knew if they were not cooperative, they would be given more solitary confinement. In 2013, there was a retrial. An official police investigation report was handed to the Office of the State of uh, as the State Prosecutor. On the 24th of February 2017, the Interior Ministry's Rehearing Committee concluded that the cases of Saver, Christian, Trigvi, Albert and Gujon should be reheard by the Supreme Court of Iceland. However, the committee did not recommend a retrial for Erla because of her perjury. So there's no new evidence to suggest that she didn't perjure herself. In February 2018... This is ridiculous. She perjured herself because someone created a false memory in her head. Mm -hmm. Oh, God's sake. All right. In February 2018, the state prosecutor requested that the Supreme Court acquit all five of the men and Erla. And on September the tw- uh, September 2018, the Supreme Court acquitted all five men. However, they did not declare them innocent. They also did not reverse Erla's perjury conviction. All five men received compensation for the injustice, which was paid to them or their families in the case um, that they were deceased. So think about this. This is in 20... Well, they should all be charged with perjury because they all wrongly confessed and made up shit because it was put in their head. So they all perjured themselves. So this is 2018, this right? This makes me angry now. Yeah, yeah. But, but so this is 2018. So what do you think would have happened? I think... Oh, me too. Well, yeah. So, so I think right. everyone's reacted the same way you have, right? So there's been an ongoing case and Earler has had to keep fighting and the media keep pushing... So anyway, in December 20... Nearly 50 years. Yeah, yeah. So funny you should say that because my next line in the story is in December 2022, after years of campaigning and almost 50 years after the disappearances, Iceland's Prime Minister issued a formal apology to Erla and she also received compensation for her time in custody. Fruptywoop, you know, whatever. (laughs) Just stolen your life. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can't get my life back. Yeah, all that time away from my daughter. So um, lastly, I'll give you a quick wrap-up of where they are now. Saver spent years trying to overturn his conviction. Like, honestly, there's in, in the, the Netflix documentary I watched, 
he confronts the media at one point and says, you're all responsible for this yes. and, and just goes to town and telling him, you know, they've yep. ruined his life, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he moved to Copenhagen. Did he serve all 17 years, uh, uh, I believe he didn't serve them all. Okay. I think he got out a bit before that, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, so don't don't quote me on it. Okay. But he, he, he had children and, and they feature in the documentary. It's quite a good one to watch. Uh, but he moved to Copenhagen and ended up on the streets okay. where he died in 2011, aged 56. Oh. Erla remained in Iceland with her daughter. This is a tragic story. Shocking, right? Mm. She trained as a language teacher and now teaches Icelandic to newly arrived migrants. Christian married and had two children. Uh, She. 70? She was 20. She would would be about that now, I reckon. She was Um, was 20 at the time. She was 20 at the time, and that's 50 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can't keep a good woman down. Christian married and had two children. He had a string of manual jobs and now lives alone in Reykjavik and rarely talks about the case. Trigvi became a decorator. He had three children, one of whom died in 2002. He got cancer and died in 2009 at the age of 58. Albert settled down and has a stable family life. He works with disadvantaged children. He's never talked publicly about the case since his release. Gujon moved to Denmark where he married and started a family. He trained as a Lutheran minister and returned to Iceland. He recently retired. And the last two, Gamunda and Gifana. There has been no update on the fate of the two missing men. There has been no further evidence suggesting murder. Absolutely nothing. They have disappeared, never to be heard of again, but for this incredible interrogation that led to the horrific story of the Reykjavik Confessions. Well, there you go. I've never heard that before. No, nor I. It's quite a story, isn't it? The other thing I find amazing is... Well, but for but for changes in the law, that you know, you could make anyone confess to anything, more or less. Well, that's the thing, right? Because it's not one person. Mm. Imagine how many crimes have been where it's probably quite easy to get one person to confess. But if you're talking about six, it's like one of those. Oh, they're, they're not allowed to do them anymore. But <laughs> I mean, this will make sense in a second. There was a whole series of psychological experiments which are ethically. Unsound. That's what I meant by you're not allowed to do yes. anymore. I didn't mean it's in. It's a don't even show. you've retired them as methods. Yeah, yeah, it's a real shame. But things they're that become. Yeah, well, they were and they were testing these sorts of abilities or these sorts of things about the brain. And I'm talking about in the sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, where they had people who famous one where they've got a guy in a white coat and his the subject comes in and there's a person in another room. And they're told you you press this button and the more you press the button, a higher electrical current will go through the person in the other room. And they start off with a low one and the person doesn't make much noise and then they get the, there's a person in a white coat saying, just keep pressing it till I tell you to stop. And they keep pressing and pressing until this person in the other room is screaming and screaming. They believe that they are electrocuting someone. And this this particular one was all about the power of a person in a white coat appeared to be in authority and therefore could say, you know, because they didn't say stop, people would keep going to the point where they thought they'd killed the subject because of the power of the white authority white next to them. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it just goes to show how susceptible yeah. the mind is and the brain is and how psychology plays in such a, an incredible way about how people respond to things. 
even in a standard interrogation, which is why Reggie yeah. says, no comment at get a yeah, lawyer. Yeah. Because, you know, you and you were saying they were quite pleasant. That is a common tactic for the police to say, look, you know, we want to, we want you out of here as soon as possible too. If you just let us know what's going on and what happened here, and and it and one minute, what you go from one conversation to the next, and the next thing you know, you're being charged. I know I refer to it a lot, but Jody Arias, when you go back to her interrogation, it's a bit like that. Like she's chatting to the police quite often. She seems pretty calm. I don't think she realizes that they are absolutely leading her down a path to say, "You've murdered your boyfriend." Yeah. It's astounding, but to your point, Swanee, not one person, six. Mm. Yeah. And then, I mean, it, it, it is like some kind of psychological nut-punch torture that they have been subjected to. It's not just the 17 years or the 20 years or however long they're away. Came after that. No. It's actually the two years of the psychological torture to get them to confess to something that they didn't do and weren't there and had nothing to do with. And that's what I find interesting. There's no... You know, we can't hang our um, hat on the person and say, oh, it was X and Y, it was X, Y and Z who put them through this because we don't have any information about that. What happened to those people? Who was the man in the yeah, white who coat was is what you want to know. Correct. Yeah. Who is that's the person that, that, that is responsible, surely. And it was like, and why are we so worried about this Were they one the police guy? force, detectives? The other question they... I have is why did we, it seems like a witch hunt almost for to get someone to, to find someone responsible for the second guy disappearing. Why? Like why was it? I don't mean that his life wasn't valuable, but I'm sure there are other disappearances and deaths in Iceland that didn't result in this kind of extraordinary miscarriage of justice. What was he, the son of Gunnison Gunnison, who turned out to be the president (laughs) or something? Like who was he? You know what I mean? Do you have any of that information, Clarky? Is there any idea of... Or was there any, like, retribution for the people who had, you know, gone yeah, about this the no, way they had? It's taken so long, that, probably half of them are dead. Yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say. Not even the documentaries and stuff, I would have thought they would be. No, but- no, because it's like 42 years later, 42 years after the yeah. people went missing, and it's only, like, you know, if you think about Erla, it's only last December that she's been acquitted of perjury. 49 years. Like it's, it's it's really really insane. So I don't I don't think it's ever been about trying to find who's responsible for the carriage of of the miscarriage of justice. I think it's more about these people trying to prove that there even was one. I get that, but I mean, surely if you've had to go back in to look at no, it, the other te- the other thing I did read sorry. is that they were found that they were acquitted of the crimes, but they weren't deemed to be innocent. And that is of the crimes that there is no evidence that ever happened. It's like what's it called? There's a really weird one in America. Is it the Albert defense or the Arthur defense or it's something like that? And it's the most bizarre thing where you say, Yes, I'm guilty, but anyway, you get out. Well, South Park did the Chewbacca defense, which went something along the lines of if Chewbacca is a Wookiee and Wookiees live on Endor. That does not make sense and therefore none of this argument makes sense and therefore you must find my client innocent, something along those lines. And I would go a step further and say that doesn't make sense because Chewbacca was not from Endor 
That's where the... But that was the trap, right? Because Ewoks. he doesn't live on Endor. Ah, yeah, Ewoks yeah. are from, that's and right. And so therefore... But that's where, what is he, the tall cousin of the Well, Ewoks? so also, if you think, so I heard that with that movie, because it was such a small budget, Endor was actually supposed to be the home of the Wookiees, but they didn't have enough material to make a whole lot of Wookiees, so they made a whole lot of Ewoks, Ewoks instead. There you go. <laughs> that does not make sense, and therefore you must find my client innocent. Yeah. Uh, it's Alfred Plea is what I was talking about, by the way. You're close. Yeah, mm-hmm. I knew You're it was right. Alfred, 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 Alfred Alf, Al, Albert, Arthur. It's uh, a guilty plea in criminal court where a de- but whereby a defendant in a criminal case does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence but says they're guilty. I don't get it. Yeah, right. Even if the evidence presented by the prosecution would likely be to persuade a judge or jury to find them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, it can be caused by circumstantial evidence, testimony, blah, blah, blah. It makes no sense to me. The the other bit I probably should tell you, so um, Iceland's legal system is slightly different to ours. So Iceland's is what they call an inquisitorial, I think, whereby the... Ah, yeah, same so as the, the French, where the judge actually does and, the investigation. And asks questions yeah. and whatnot. So yeah. there's no peers who are sitting here it's saying... It's an inquisition. Yeah, yeah. So, right. so once the prosecution yeah. has its confessions and presents its case, there you go. What? How do you... Who's there to argue that? And, and you're not... You know, you're presenting to the legal system about the legal system's outcome, not to a bunch of people who go, this makes no sense. You know, we're not... We're not legal experts, but, you know, if I was held in solitary confinement for 600 days, maybe I would confess to it. Okay, now can I give you my sentence? You're straight out of the blocks with your sentence. I love it. So I've had a bit of time to think about it. And, uh, uh, look, Swanee, I think we're just going to have to go through the paperwork and find the person with the white coat, find the person responsible or people's responsible. Yes, but I can't believe it. I can't find it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, no names. Okay. And they've got to exist. They must no, know I who mean, worked I mean, on the case. I mean, we're literally going to get on a plane and go to Iceland oh. and do the research, right, <laughs> so that this sentence can be carried out. But we're going to assume that we've done So as that. I said at the start, though, if you, yeah. if you try to piece this case together, it is really infuriating because there's, you know, there's little bits and pieces, but none of it is clear. Hence, I had all of those sources trying to make it all fit together I mean, a way that made sense. But, yeah, it's a, it's a tough mm. one. Because it doesn't make sense. The Chewbacca defence. terrible. It's a travesty. Yeah. Okay, so we've gone to Iceland in our timey-winey um, trial-by-one mm-hmm. magic machine and Swanee and I have also become fluent in Icelandic and we've looked at all the records, we've found who are responsible and now we're back here and whomever those people are, I'm going to take them for a walk and it's going to take 60 days because it's, you know, like 60 times walking out to try and find a where, where, the, where the non-body for the non-murder was non-buried. Um, so we're going to go out and we're going to take 60 days to get somewhere and where we're going to go is we're going to go to the top or an area in Iceland where around us is a giant lava flow because they still have, as you would know, live uh, volcanoes. And so around us we've got a lava flow. Everything else is relatively desolate and there's a bit of a cave there and I'm going to pop them in there in solitary confinement. (gasps) And every time they want to leave, the volcano erupts and the lava flows around them and they can't leave. And they're basically stuck like a little hermit in a cave where they can have a little think about the false memories that they want to create for themselves and maybe they will remember that they should have done things nice. better. 
Will you, will you give them drugs as well? Stoles the lives of these six guys. Mm. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll, what I'll do is, oh, no, even better. This is a little topical for our international listeners. You can uh, you can Google this and see what the hell I'm talking about. But maybe we'll grow some <sighs> death cap mushrooms oh, around well as well. As well as some yeah, magic nice. mushrooms. And and they can take a choice as to what kind of mushroom they would like to sample they on that day. On and they'll toast. either have a nice little hallucinogenic experience. Price is right. The mushroom is right. Yeah. Possibly Ooh. die. There you go. I did see that in an international. I thought in, oh, it's um, big inter- news. in yeah, English. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was the oh, lead story on that. I can't wait for that. that. Surprise. While the investigation. Yeah, that's an investigative strategy, though, isn't it? To yeah, say nothing and wait for it to all float to the surface. Play out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. nice one. Well that's done. That's my sentence. There you go. Over to you guys. Swanee, thoughts? Right. Right. Oh, I'm really annoyed. Penny Page like can't tell. <laughs> I, this is an absolute shit show, isn't mm. it, really? Right, you guys. you got to pull yourself so together. The if you just go back to the very start of why this all yeah. came about is because a system failed everybody involved. So I don't know if it's the criminal justice system or judicial system. I think it's criminal justice and the police. Their systems totally mm. let them down. So I don't know the individuals involved, so I can't say. Yeah, they're the police, the judiciary, yeah, the judges. judges. Yeah. So yeah. I can't say that they were good people or bad people. They certainly did a terrible job. There's no doubt about that. But was that because their systems allowed them to do that? So the the interrogations, I mean, that can't have been, it's not legal. That's not Sanctioned? Like, yeah, do you know what I mean? That can't be best practice. I don't yeah, know what you'd call yeah. it. That. Who signed yeah, that yeah. off? Yeah, and yeah. that's what I want to know. Who was in charge of this as a, mm. as a, as a way? It's, and it's not that it's so long ago, right? We've looked at so many crimes. I know. That's what I struggle it with. It's not that. Genie from Life on Mars. I've worked it out. Because that's the kind of yeah, shit he yeah. would have done. He was an old school policeman. He would have roughed people oh, up. And, you know, it's the seventies. Maybe that's what we're not taking into account. I can I can take that into account to an extent. I can do that, right? But it's mm. the sheer volume or, or sheer magnitude of the days yeah. that they spent in isolation. And I mean, sixty trips out to the lava flow. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Do you know what I mean? It's like they must have had quite a bit of time to work on this. There must have been anything else going on. It sounds like yeah, it was a yeah. couple of years. Yes, and yet there were other people missing as well. So they're focused totally on these two people that are missing without True. any evidence. There are other people that have said there were lots of people it was a common thing to go missing and you know, people just fell down. Love you know, cavities. Love cavities, yes. So I'm trying to build a, a scenario in my mind where I'd be like, okay, so they went down that avenue, this is what they did. But I, I don't understand how the sheer amount of time they spent on getting the admissions of guilt was anything other than suspect to the, anybody who was looking at it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Who? There must have been somebody at the top, yeah. let alone somebody at the middle, somebody at the bottom, and the person who was actually interrogating them. How many people would you have had needed just to work in one department to be able to do that many hours of interviews? And it's Time mm. six people, how many days? It's it's a huge undertaking in and of itself, yeah. right? Think about the time involved. If we've said six people, this many days in, uh, this many hours of interviews, this many trips out to here, it, it's, no. All the drugs. Crazy. That's before we even get to them going yeah, to the prison. The other bit I forgot to tell you was the water oh, you know, for torture for Saver. Saver was scared of water and they gave him water torture whilst he was in solitary confinement. It's a travesty, that's what it is. Well, that's about all I've got. It's a human rights violation. I think it is. And I cannot understand why 
it, you know, if you told me it had gone on for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, it might go under the radar, right? But when someone above or someone's checking, oh, we nearly got it, we nearly got it, <laughs> we think we might get it on when we go out for the, the 47th trip out to the lava flows. Sort of, you know, it, we're close. We're, <laughs> we're yeah. close. It is, it's nearly farcical, right, that there's that much time and effort spent on trying to literally tease out some kind of confession. It, surely that somebody must have gone, maybe we're not We're barking up the tree. wrong bloody tree yeah. here, fellas. Anyway, so I just find it totally out of whack that that was done to solve two crimes that, that you know, they had no evidence of. I don't, I, I don't know how I can really sort of trial anyone when I know exactly I want to, I want to trial a de- it's not even a department, it's sort of their, their policing system. It's just so flawed. Yeah. Great. Sorry, that's really not what anyone wanted to hear. Well, no, I think it's a, that's all right. it's annoying. You can have a rant instead of a, a sentence. A rant instead of a sentence. <laughs> In fact, you're going to sentence these people to an endless for rant to that from rant. you. Yeah, yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what I was saying. That would be great. We could just take that, you know, two-minute snippet and play it on repeat to them over and over until In solitary confinement. they're better. Correct. They're better. What do you reckon, uh, Clark? I'm, I'm probably... A lot like you. I, I really struggled, as I said, to to piece the story together because it just sounds so incredulous. And I don't know, I, I've got this naive mind 100% where I kind of look at this stuff and go, you know, I've seen movies where someone gets tortured because they know something and, you know, they hold off because they're Bruce Willis or whatever it might be. They're super strong. Yeah, mind, whatever. Yeah. But mm. usually there's something that's happened that may or may not warrant it, but at least there's something that's happened. I, I kind of look at this and go, my God, what what actually happened? And what happened to actually link, they, link them? Missing. Nothing. So what? Nothing. You know, that that's kind of okay. I guess I come back to, and I, I didn't, talk a lot about this in the story and I, to be honest I didn't see a lot of it in my research but that look in Saver's eyes in that documentary when he was having a go at the media and I kind of go you know yeah. mm. maybe they were the ones who were keeping the story current and keeping the pressure up on the police to find I bet you're um, right I you bet know, you're, right. you're, you're yeah. shit at your job because they you found the car, you found the keys, it was unlocked, the keys were in the ignition. How on earth can you not find a suspect for this? Because I can't imagine anyone sitting behind a desk going, you know what, I could just go, I don't know anything about this, let's leave it, but what I'm going to do is create this ridiculous amount of work and stress for no, me and my yep. colleagues to get to the bottom of something it that there is no evidence of. It? <laughs> I think you're probably close to it there with the media, though, because I think there's been a couple of crimes that we've looked at where something's been presented in, in a, a way initially. And I think my Shay Panda story was one of those when the young woman in question had, remember she was due to go to trial the week that she yes. was murdered for a, a, like a petty drug-related crime. So the media got hold of that and it was, oh, is she a drug dealer? Oh, it's also all associated with it. had nothing to do with it. So what the media chooses to you know portray and what they set out to make you know that's where the public sort of uh, not uh, what i'm after the the view the public builds is based on what they're what shared with them in the media and they can then drive that right so you know if if you're saying you know look i just don't think people think it's not good enough you need to find out what's going on and now there's two there's someone murdering people in our community and And if if the media is determined that it is a murder and everyone's going you know what there is absolutely no evidence of a murder 
But they're going, well, they obviously died because they're not around. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Well, it's Nancy Grace, isn't it? Yeah, it's 100% it's, it's Nancy Grace. It's Iceland's yeah, version yeah. of Nancy oh, Grace. Oh, I forgot yeah. about her. <laughs> What's that face for, Swanee? She was Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, okay. and lots of others. Mm. You know, she's one of those investigative journalists who basically says everyone I is guilty. I think Nancy Drew. No, no. She's an American <laughs> oh, journalist who, yeah. who just I wouldn't call her never shuts oh, up about someone being guilty. She's what does she call herself? Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Squeakiest yeah. door getting the most oil yeah, she's, is what she She's is. really yeah. loud with her convictions and really quiet with her apologies. Yeah, yeah she doesn't do Ooh. that. But she turns the tide of public opinion and you could be right that the media, there was a Nancy Grace of Iceland doing something like that around all these people who disappear. So I think um, from a sentence perspective, I agree with you it's very hard and I don't really understand who is specifically responsible. Whilst I was on holidays, I, I often look at um, Apple News or whatever that news thing is on my phone, which if you swipe one way, it comes up. And there's all these headlines and I click on them and then I start reading the story. I'm like, oh, that has got nothing to do with the headline. I'm Not so news. sick of being Clickbait. clickbaited. Exactly yeah. that. And so mm-hmm. I think what I would like is um, not so much memory distrust syndrome, but I would like media distrust syndrome to mm-hmm. take oh, like root yeah, yeah, across the globe because I'm sick of shit media, shit journalism, you know, people who are trying to manufacture a story that doesn't exist. It's like 90%, 98% of Media airtime is some dickhead's opinion. Yeah, and but if you if but it's different, right? If you, if you present opinion as this opinion, is for entertainment purposes. If you present yes. opinion as opinion, yeah. it's different to presenting opinion as news. You know, we're not we're not sitting here going breaking True. news. I think this might be about to happen. We're we're reviewing things <laughs> do, do, and going do, 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 do breaking news yeah. in 1974. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> this happened, and I'm outraged. <laughs> Just just stop with your guessing shit and report the fact and and the world will be a better place. So, yeah, I want media distrust syndrome. They're they're so good at making us distrust politicians and everyone else. Not that politicians shouldn't be distrusted, but media have a lot to say and they get away with an awful lot. Maybe what we should do is also run an awareness campaign around MDS being media distress syndrome where we well we basically do like the iceberg challenge for all the people in media who do all this you know just giving their opinion but instead of the iceberg let's use the lava from oh, Iceland let's put them on it sorry ice bucket challenge yeah you know that's what was it I was like I was like I don't think I know the iceberg challenge well, it's, anyway, it's, it's a little bit less comfortable yeah. than the ice bucket challenge because you put an iceberg on your head and whatever it is it's just come up in my memories again so it must be I think I worked out it was like was it 10 years Seven ago or 10 nine years ago when it was going yeah, around yeah. so it, sorry the ice bucket challenge memories. yes the ice bucket mm-hmm. challenge so instead of the ice in the ice bucket challenge we should have lava because you know I'm, I'm very keen mm. on keeping it in the topography of Iceland yeah yeah nice I like yeah. it the last thing I should say is that whilst I read this and it just sounds horrendous one of the things that I noticed when I was in Iceland is how pro they are about not tolerating bad behaviour, you know, violence of any kind, disrespect to women, 
transgender, you know, gay, racism, any of that. And there's, there's literally signs up in so many of the pubs. So very, so very similar to yes, Australia. Yes, almost mirror image, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but but yeah. so what I'm saying, what, the reason I want to say that is that we've just presented oh, we this love, case but. that has been all about a horrible kind of system and, and the way pe- people were treated. But they are but very, very different nowadays. Happy and it works. They, yeah, well, yeah, well, they are. Yeah. And, and so I think we can learn a lot from the Icelandic people and, and where they're at at the moment in that regard. Yeah. I think that's a really fair comment, actually. And it's funny because the way you described it and the way that country has developed and opened itself to the world is quite remarkable, really, isn't it? All right. Obviously, not one I'd never heard of, but a good one and highly frustrating. But, you know, that's you, Clarky. You like bringing them home every time. It's, uh, I would also say the joys of travel, joys of travel, right? You find out crazy, crazy shit because you Google where you've been. It your eyes, doesn't right. it? Right. Yes. Don't go to London. The next you'll be doing is Jack the Ripper. All right. Don't go to <laughs> On that note. Oh, don't go there either. <laughs> oh, is that mushroom? Oh, lucky you boys don't eat mushroom. You're safe. Right, right. Miss you already. Ciao, Love you, girls. Ciao. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trial by Wine. You can contact us at trialbywine at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Trial by Wine on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron at www.patreon.com, Trial by Wine, or visit our website, www.trialbywine.com, to donate to us. Your support will help us cover many more cases and apply wacky sentences. We really appreciate you listening and hope you tell everyone about us. Our cover art is by John Christo and music is by Beauchamp from pixabay.com.